the People's Tribunal was a very serious effort to shed light over a problem that has become endemic, that has become transnational and across the borders. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Now, last month, The Hague was again the seat of a tribunal, and this time it was to hear the final judgment of the People's Tribunal on the murder of journalists. Yes, this feels really personal because we are both journalists. Yeah, well, the kind of murders that they were investigating happened in places like Syria and Sri Lanka may be a bit more dangerous than our general type of daily work. So we thought that we'd take a moment to actually chat to the prosecutor of that tribunal, Almudena Bernabal. Hi, Almudena. Hi, how are you? We're very well, thank you. Almudena is the co-founder of the Guernica 37 group and joint head of the Guernica 37 chambers. She's got a ton of expertise and has been an advocate for multiple landmark cases regarding international crimes uh, in Chile, in El Salvador, Colombia, Libya, Yemen, Syria, Peru, Bangladesh, Iraq, Venezuela, Guatemala, the Gambia and Mexico. You may have actually seen her in the documentary Granito, How to Nail a Dictator. That was about Guatemala genocide against the Mayan people getting the former Guatemalan dictator Efrem Rios Montt for genocide. And if you're an avid ICC follower, you might have seen that she's filed communications about the Saudi-led coalition attack on civilian population in Yemen, arguing that it constitutes war crimes and crimes against humanity. And you may have seen her stuff actually at the uh, Kosovo uh, Specialist Chambers. What was she doing there? She was counsel for the defense of uh, Nassim Haradinaj, who was the vice president of uh, Kosovo Liberation Army Veterans Association. And she was part of the legal team leading the defense of several suspects under the investigations for international crimes allegedly committed during the 1998-99 conflict in Kosovo. Well, um, very potted biography, but uh, we're actually going to focus on your role at the People's Tribunal. Let's start off with a basic understanding of what it is. I'm sure people ask you, Almudena, you know, what is it that you're up to? What's your phrase that you use to describe what this thing is? First of all, happy, happy to, to be discussing all of this with you, because to be honest, I will introduce the topic by saying that there's very little overall knowledge of the strength and the scope of a tribunal of this kind. And I never want to be, you know, uh, take the credit, including for myself. When I was first called to participate at this tribunal in Guernica as an office was invited. And then all my colleagues here, barristers, and, and like they thought that my experience, prosecutorial experience, would be the best to suit the needs of the tribunal. So I had to really rush into what am I doing? Like what is this setting and what is expected from, from this setting? And I have to say that I am I am quite impressed. Perhaps you want to see that it's marginal in the context of the last 30 years of the advances of establishing both efforts such as the international tribunals and also permanent institutions, as we have now the ICC. 
But in my opinion, there's so much room for spaces or for, for initiatives like this one that I'm going to hopefully describe because there's so much that still happens to humans, new phenomenons as, as this one it is, you know, the persecution of journalists, something that could be so obvious, but really we have never seen it in this, uh, in this with this gravity or with this frequency or, or with these or following these, these patterns that we'll discuss later. And so much of it sometimes is not uh, attended by the ongoing institutions or ongoing international efforts that I found that these in, the People's Tribunal was a very serious effort to shed light over a problem that has become endemic, that has become transnational and across the borders, whether countries are democratic or pseudo-democratic or authoritarian. In many instances, the same treatment when they try to suffocate the truth or they try to suppress something coming out to light, whether it's corruption or whether it's you know, malfeasance of any kind. And the people's tribunal for how Bear with me, you know, sounds really uh, naive, but for how new the subject matter is within the context of international human rights violations or international violations and accountability for that, those kind of crimes seem like a very adequate venue. So the idea was behind this People's Tribunal, frankly, to just expose this, this violence, expose this targeted group in and kind of take it to the to the next step, what we're hoping naturally that this tribunal will achieve. Okay, uh, you've given a great kind of introduction to why it's so important, but you still haven't precised down for me what exactly it is. I mean, it's kind of a, a civil society initiative, which, which fills a gap. Exactly. It's rigorous. It's run by a treaty. So it was signed a treaty that exactly right. And not exclusively civil society. Any person in the world could bring to the tribunal a particular concern, for lack of a better word, and the tribunal will decide. The institutional, or you know, is, is loose in the sense that it's not a building in the middle of Rome, but it's a number of human beings that have been there making sure that this is functioning. And they will consider whether the subject merits to be able to then put the mechanism of the of the backing of the structure and the concept and the mandate of the tribunal to the service. And that's what it did. This particular tribunal for the murder of journalists is an initiative of three and civil society groups, actually quite well reputed around international groups. They have been working with journalists, vigilant of the rights of journalists and the safety of journalists. We have CPJ. The Committee for the Protection of Journalists. Exactly, and then Freedom Press, which is basic, based, it was international, but based in The Hague, and Reporters Without Borders, the particular, you know, the French branch, which is the, the foundational in the original. So they put together this initiative that was accepted and endorsed by the tribunal. My concern here is because it's kind of a civil society initiated, and then, as you say, it does something quite rigorous, and we'll get into the detail of what it is. But isn't it because those civil society, those are essentially pressure groups, it doesn't actually mean that it's just a bit of propaganda? I don't think so. And I think that precisely that they went through this route when they could have done 
you know, many other, there are many other practices out there to put a particular issue on the table or to get governments to engage, to public policymakers. I actually think that they were thinking accountability. They were thinking about the commission, not in the framework of international criminal law that is so tidying and so strict, but they were thinking about accountability. We're talking about people that are dying or they're being persecuted or they're being shut down by governments, by, you know, organized crime, you name it, or sometimes even worse, you know, by the association of governments and, and organized crime. And we're talking about impunity in percentages that are really scary. So because they were thinking about accountability, that's where they wanted something beyond just a demonstration or a report or a press conference, if you know what I mean, with all the importance that those steps may may take and and, then how much they can get done. They wanted to put it with the wrapping, you know, of a a more formal. And and to me, it's everything but propaganda. Perhaps that's why three very serious associations got together and thought about the structure of the tribunal and thought about meaningful, and I'm sure you're going to ask me about that as we speak about the composition, but really well-reputed and proven with credentials, you know, people that will do the, the panel of judges. They will have the knowledge, the depth, the experience, and frankly, the gravitas. There's some people in, in the panel of judges, they have very large experience. This sounds very pretentious because I'm going to talk about myself in third person, but you know, I'm not, I'm not just, you know, like an academic. I'm pretty out there <laughs> in my position. I always joke with them because my brain goes into places that sometimes they wanted to reframe me from going, you know, because it's prosecutorially designed. And they were saying, well, well, we're not going to go as far as that, Almudena, because this is not a tribunal 100%. I mean, this has to remain in this spectrum of having a component of civil society and symbol. And for me, I would have gone much farther. So I actually, they were more prudent than I was. But I think that having someone like me also proves the commitment of analyzing the subject, you know, the issue from from within. And actually, I'm, I'm persuaded that the, the result of this, it's not a, a statement of criminal, international criminal law, but it's very going to be very aligned with, with trends and standards that touch, in my opinion, accountability for international crimes. And if we look a little closer at your role, how did you approach your work? You were explaining and, and I guess prosecuting the individual murders of journalists in specific countries. So did you or kind of your office gather evidence, found witnesses, or are you summarizing what, what other people have found? How did you approach this this task? Perhaps twofolded answer. One, I approach it as I do every single uh, other case or investigation, or, and I will say that from a place of a pretty obvious lack of knowledge, I mean, ignorance of the facts and the circumstances, you know, it's a little genetic, but the surround, the, the both from the, to me, it's very important in the criminal, and again, this is the, the, my mind and how I think, but you know, what are the causes that put people in a particular vulnerable situation? So understanding that, then obviously the dangers that ended up in many instances, particularly in the cases that I had to to attend and to study and to prepare for and, and to know which are the, the result were the killings of the journalists, just, just that plain. And then 
for me was a huge learning curve because as much as you think you know about crimes or state inflicted violence and you know that kind of things that has been my, my cup of tea you realize how little you know about a particular new set of circumstances and attacking women is different than attacking children and attacking journalists is different than other violence you know against indigenous people you know to just some of the, the experience that I have acquired over the years so the learning curve and then something very important the second part of the question is that there was a young spectacularly hard-working team put together legal team by the organizations they they put this initiative together so it will be very unfair on my part to say you know I did all the work they have done they have done a very important, I mean, a huge amount of work as to selecting the cases that was there. This is really what they wanted to do. They knew the cases that they wanted in. They had a line, crucial people that will testify as witnesses in different, to be honest, when I came is with the knife, <laughs> the strategy knife, as I call them, you know, everything was a little bit excessive, thinking from a trial perspective. And I wanted to be as uh, as clean and as succinct as, as a judge will have, a judge will have knocked me in the head if I brought five witnesses to talk about the same story, as, as important as the story can be. So what I brought was that kind of sense, hopefully after 25 years of doing this, of, um, well, we three the witnesses, we want to engage our judges, engage our audience. You want to, what do you want to prove here? Because people were deaths for the most part, particular attacks were public. So, I mean, it was not so much about informing about the happening, but to try to be very meticulous about who are we making, even though this, this trial, again, is not about a conviction or a, a putting someone in jail. You want it to be rigorous about the evidence, the precedents, you know, potential patterns, elements of the crime, and eventually the result, which was the killing of these people, and who is responsible. It's, at the end of the day, it's pretty linear when you do criminal law, but that's a little bit of the sense. It was great amount of work done by them, and I guess my, my contribution was to stream it, to be part of a trial. And what exactly were you trying to prove? I mean, does, you know, journalists do a dangerous job in war zones? Yeah, that that's not the thing you're trying to prove. It was more to do with the actual pattern of impunity and what that means. What precisely? I think three three elements, and they all will go into patterns for sure, definitely. One is that exactly right. I mean that all these deaths, all these attacks, whatever they happen and under the different circumstances, whether it's a conflict whether it's a, a social revolt or some sort of dissenting or, or civil disobedience, you know, whatever the context is, or in the context of Syria was purely Arab Spring, you know, civil disobedience. Whatever the context, what you have is a pattern on how these people were targeted, how these people were follow, you know, survey, how, and how progressively they became the enemy of a particular set of whether it was leadership or intentions of that leadership of political regime or corrupted uh, government officials. And then it is really fascinating to me the progression of how they become from a true journalist, independent and autonomous, to be a potential target. And then from there on, what this 
the perpetrator, you know, different instances of the perpetration, want to get rid of them. And that was, to me, very powerful to show it as almost identical as a pattern naturally is in three different countries with three different circumstances. Perhaps the second component was the impunity. It is that so many efforts, I mean, the last few years, there's been from the United Nations, special rapporteurs, uh, coalitions of governments, the, the envoy by the United Kingdom, led by um, what is called the, the panel, the high-level panel with all of these professionals, lawyers for the most part. And despite of all those efforts, the impunity for these crimes is, is almost 100%, if not 99%, which is not strange to I me mean, it's not affording to me because I come from the generation of lawyers that we're here just to see if we can fight that impunity in this persistence but it was shocking to me there were the disparity of the places where these attacks take place you know from northern countries to southern countries to with that disparity with the disparity of the work the investigative and the reporting work of those journalists and different even level of judicial, you know, guarantees and judicial systems and, and still is so persistent, the impunity. And perhaps the third part that needed a little bit of, of light to me is, and I think that this, this effort was is about the, the perpetration. I mean, who is behind? Something that the, one of the witnesses, Paul Conroy, said in a way that just chill my, my back is when he said, during the Syria conflict, and now it is 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 the case in Ukraine, and it's going to be the case going forward. Unfortunately, journalists became uh, casualties because obviously, you know, people die in wars and conflicts, and they could die as well to be targets, to be something that we needed to get rid. Because whether it's through social media, through rigorous journalism, whatever, we are exposing things that, and they have realized somewhere somehow. People realized it was very easy to kill the journalist to suppress the piece of information. That is unthinkable 40 years ago. And, and I, I, I think that this tribunal came to, perhaps sounds a little technical, but no, when you listen to the human story, it is really what has been happening. That is 35 years ago, 40 years ago, the journalist was not attacked. It happened, it got killed, got in danger and exposed itself, but it was never, the problem to be, you know, to cut off. And I think that's hopefully that informs uh, the next 20 years. And uh, listeners, you can't see it, but we can. Almudena is moving our hands around a lot and also banging the table for emphasis. So maybe that's what you hear in the recording, just to let you know that we can't <laughs> get rid of that, but she's really passionate about it. I wanted to ask what kind of details for the specific cases you needed to kind of prove that pattern, how somebody becomes from kind of a regular journalist in, in let's say, the regime's eyes into somebody who's an enemy of the state or your rule that you need to get rid of? Was there any specific things that you, you were looking for to prove that pattern? You know, it's also the, the time in, in history that we're living, which is so interesting. The Arab Spring provided for so many of these examples, you know, to, to your question, you have a youth 
generally speaking, at the university, for instance, which has been the entire history from the 1960s. It's always been the curious group, the ones that caused trouble, the ones that provoked change, whether it was women's rights or gay rights, you know, or in Spain, you know, getting rid of the dictator. It doesn't matter. So you have from that particular seed in the Arab Spring, you then because of social media, because of communication, in a way being more democratized than ever. Here we have podcasts, you know, you guys are doing this great. So all these beautiful sources of getting informed and getting engaged, then made really easy to also communicate at large certain flaws or certain wrongdoings or certain irregularities. And so what we were looking as a pattern to answer your question as a trend was that you know what is to communicate and what were the dangers the people were undertaking and then suddenly you realize that both the consecrated journalist from the new york times and the young person attending university outside of damascus at some point were communicating the same thing or were exposing the same thing and and they became both the same target with the dif- with the difference that is much easier to kill the young student from Damascus than the New York Times journalist. That was very upsetting to the perpetrators or the governments. And then eventually they went after the New York Times journalists as well, because what they couldn't really, the, the, the madness is that they couldn't control the information getting out. And how do you do that? Well, let's kill, it's always does kind of, let's kill the New York Times journalists because, and then maybe as it happened, forever, and at least in my investigations, some killings are also lectures or lessons for to suppress other type of conduct. So what we're looking is into that, the information provided for the pattern, the particular happening that was, that was denounced, that was exposed, but provided for the pattern. And then also, which is a different conversation, but it is relevant in this context, the misinformation that then happened right after. You know, what kind of information will then be produced by whether it's the Philippines government or the Syrian regime under Bashar al-Assad to counter a attack, the information they had leaked or they had been exposed. So it is fascinating, but that's the information that we were thinking. I think the information and the profiles of the people and eventually the way they were treated with that information, how much put them in, in, in danger was one of the, the key patterns, for instance. You mentioned already um, a very large number of initiatives that have been taken in this area. I mean, it's become a key area of concern how press has been targeted and how to protect the freedom of, of speech. But it's still very curious to me, the idea of choosing this model as a, as a way of highlighting the issue, running a, a people's tribunal. And, and I'm Wondering whether the three organizations, Free Press Unlimited, Committee to Protect Journalists and Reporters by Borders, did they know what they were doing when they said we're really going to have this kind of a process? I mean, did they choose it in order to to expose the kind of evidence that you're talking about? I hope I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody, and I guess this is a question to present them with. I will not say in the despair that my victims and clients over the years felt about not having a particular recourse or a particular venue where to bring their complaints, but it was a little bit of that sentiment. 
I think that if I can speak, and again, this is probably very pretentious on my part, but if I can speak from the colleagues of the, these organizations, the feeling is how can we make noise and be listened because a lot of the established and well-established places are not looking at this issue with the scope and the, and the depth and the gravity that this issue deserves. In my opinion, I was persuaded within 24 hours, and I'm not easy to persuade on these matters. I am of the school of the, I, I just hate, with, if you allow me here a little caveat, the alarmism amongst the colleagues in the international criminal arena, where everything is a, it's a crime against humanity, everything is a genocide, it's like for crying out loud. I mean, these crimes took us forever, you know, to put in a criminal code, to understand it, to decode it, to use it. So we have to be prudent. So these kind of like, oh my God, well, no, when you go there and you start investigating, you realize that, well, yes, it was violence, could be random, could be civilians, but not necessarily amounts at times to, you know. So I actually think that it comes a little bit from that, from quite the opposite, from then knocking at doors and saying, what you have here is massive. It's transnational. It's happening for the same reasons. Well, I mean, Mexico is particularly bleeding in my heart because in Mexico is it's just as, as grotesque and as, you know, as, as gross as this every other violence, whether it was having women. But how did you bring this to the attention of people? And I think that was what was behind this effort, honestly. And you have wide experience of, of prosecuting and, and litigating international crimes. What parallels do you see? Because uh, the indictment uses, of course, the words uh, widespread and systematic, which suggests that the murder of journalists uh, should be seen as, as a crime against humanity. The patterns that I see, many, in the sense of the traditional criminal investigation that ends up in a criminal trial and ideally in a conviction, you are facing very much, think about how you put it together. What you have is, just to name some, estates and perpetrators that are not willing to collaborate whatsoever. Not only they're not going to tell you I did or I didn't do it, is that they also are engaging in denial, in putting you know as much sand and whatever they can to tell you you are a liar, you're delusional. So you encounter the same resistance that usually is is targeting manipulation and public opinion, you know, that kind. So you have the same obstacle. Perhaps the other part that to me is a parallel that is very important is what kind of evidence do you have? Precisely because you're going against the states or against very powerful perpetrators, you don't find a document. You don't find a letter. You know, they're going to destroy documents. They're going to put them in, into hiding. If it's a government, usually archives, they are not accessible. So, and then you rely only on witness testimony. In, or, or not exclusively, but mostly on witness testimony. And that also, it is something to very much as a practitioner to take into consideration. When you need to prove almost your entire case through witnesses, it's as it's very strong, but but it is it's delicate. You have to be very mindful, and that's another. And I I agree with you with your statement that this is uh, a spread. This is systematic, and the systematicity you know is done the same way. As I was telling at the beginning, you can draw 
even parallels on the timing. You know, when a journalist starts exposing a particular a particular event or a particular corruption scheme, and then they let them work, they let them publish, but then they start threatening, they start threatening their outlet, they they incur in some legal actions to try to close the, the outlet. And so that actually, that systematic approach to the repression is not just arriving and killing them. It's a little bit of a, of a process that you can see in different countries. And perhaps that's what I got excited, so I'm sorry well, just to say excited, but I got excited because I see a lot of potential in the proper venue to bring criminal charges against perpetrators and to have very, from this effort on, to have uh, real trials and, and real investigations to begin with on, on the murder of journalists. And in the People's Tribunal, you don't have the actual accused in the dock. You don't have a representative of a government. Uh, I was talking to a senior lawyer recently about trials in absentia, and they were suggesting that trials in absentia are really not really worthwhile doing because at the end of the day, you've really just got to redo them if you do get hold of the person. So really, what's the point? But on the other hand, the People's Tribunal, even though you don't have the person in the dock, doesn't have that purpose. The purpose is to show the extent of your wares, to show how much evidence you have to really show what, what the case would be. So I'm wondering, you know, what's your opinion? Right, I think both things. Because on the one hand, and it's important for people to know, the ones that are at stake in this people's tribunal as usually a state, is not individual. So this is not an individual liability effort. So it will be against a particular country of a particular state. And all of all three states that they were chosen, you know, to expose the violence against journalists, Sri Lanka, Syria, and Mexico, all of them, and like, look at it. I mean, you have Sri Lanka with a pseudo stable government, actually in the middle of the tribunal, the whole Rajapaksa regime exploded. But I mean, at least from the, when, when the tribunal was established, the Rajapaksas were ruling and things were a little bit more stable. And then Mexico, you have Lopez Obrador, and it is a, and then and Syria, which is, you know, the chaos that is trying to legitimize himself, you know, post, post repression with Bashar. But all of them were given the opportunity to be par with their own lawyers or with their own representatives of any kind. They don't have to be lawyers, could be a foreign affairs, could be a special ambassador or attache. And all of them decided, Mexico doubted, at some point thought about maybe sending a representation, but all of them uh, decided not to, not to defend. And so that is on the one hand. And so the opportunity was provided and they rejected it. But on the other hand, I disagree with that colleague that said that the in absentia prosecution is not needed. First of all, many countries have it. Argentina has it. Italy has it. And I have to say that even if you are a true believer, as I am, of due process, in absentia provides precisely in these kind of cases that to me have a social dimension and they are affecting all of us, whether you accept it or not, because you know, a massacre in a next to my hometown town, that affects everyone. You know, you can deny it, you can look in a different direction, but eventually that's going to affect who you are and how you live in a particular country and who rules you. I think the killing journalist is a problem of social dimension. And in that kind of trials, 
I think it's the process is much more important than the result in the sense that what you're trying is to educate your people to inform in many instances of what happened, who did it, why was it done, to expose sometimes a regime, sometimes an individual, for the most part, political contexts. They are in the past or they are gone. And, and I actually think there's a huge amount of value of those trials. And if the perpetrator wants to come and or is arrested and that needs to be reinstated, it's never a waste of time. The evidence is there, is being processed, is being admitted under the rules. I actually think there's a lot of value in those kind of efforts. If you look at, at the People's Tribunal specifically, do you know, are, are those findings ever accepted in, in quote-unquote real courts? You know, what is the legal value of the determination you make? I've never really seen it uh, be cited in, in, in real cases. Sometimes it feels like it, but I'm not at all the international law cases all the time. Well, I think that there's a lot of what was shared or testified upon or introduced as evidence at the People's Tribunal that could be absolutely useful in the context. If tomorrow, which is not going to happen because it doesn't work that way, I don't want to confuse anybody, but if tomorrow the ICC created a special chambers that says we're going to investigate and try killing of journalists because we believe it's a phenomenon that requires that kind of attention, Many, much of the work they has done here could be extrapolated, could be the beginning. Now, the problem is that that is not being admitted or scrutinized, you know, with the level of the threshold that a tribunal will do, you know, with the threshold of the standard of proof, with, you know, it needs to be filtered, for lack of a better word, through a different set of rules that it will be a criminal court. But in terms of substantially, absolutely. The word is there, proves criminal conduct proves aggravating circumstances, use of power, state-inflicted violence. I mean, there's a lot of criminal elements in, in, in the work done by the tribunal. So what's your hope in the end, Amadenia, for what you achieve with this? I mean, I'm wondering whether it might be a better parallel with truth commissions. I know you've served on those uh, as well, that, that you kind of set in stone sort of as the result of this court, a certain set of understood facts and outcomes. And is that what the outcome of this tribunal should be? This falls more into personal answers, so I'm going to frame it. I mean, this is a personal opinion very much, or a professional opinion. When you look back, you know, 35, 40 years, and I've said this publicly before, every single truth commission or every single collective effort of this kind, designed wrongly, rightly, clumsily, whatever way, designed to expose a particular phenomenon, talk about it as as clearly as possible about it, it have this, this kind of vocation. All of them, if you look at it, I dare anybody to find one that did not end up in very contundent accountability efforts. I'm not saying successful because success is completely different, you know, measure in in my work. And I don't speak in that way. But definitely, if you look at Guatemala, Argentina, Chile, I'm talking about where the original truth commissions in the context of of authoritarian regimes and conflict and post-conflict, kind of the beginning of the transitional justice processes as we know them today. But let's talk about Tunisia. Let's talk about, you know, obviously, 
Germany with the tribunal. I mean, every single effort of accountability that it was serious and that is, I actually think informs our work and our field started this way. So I actually think they could very much serve, not isolated, not alone, but I think create a momentum of where, okay, now we talked about these in three countries at the same time, look at what, what we're talking, I mean, look at that. And then let's let's see what, what, what it goes next. And I actually think people are gonna pay attention. And at the very, it's, it's this document, it's this tangible result from this very, very massive effort done by these three, three groups that actually you see how it will carry something, absolutely. Thank you very much. We always end our podcast with uh, more personal questions. And so we have three, what we call asymmetrical haircuts questions that we always ask all our guests. And the first one is a very job interview one, apparently, which is what didn't we ask you, but we should have. I was afraid that you will ask me, do you think that this is going to be a successful and you didn't? So I actually did the opposite. You have not asked me the <laughs> No, I think that the most important aspects of the challenges that this work, you know, are there. Oh, it's always good to know that we are well-rounded. Our second question is, do you have a favorite court case? Something maybe back from earlier in your career, something you have an anecdote about that you'd like like to, to share with us, I mean, it can be favorite for a for a bad reason as well as for a good reason. Well, I guess one of my favorites, I have to be the anecdote favorite in a positive note, is the one that I shared and then I found a husband because I married the man that I tried a case with. We were working together. We were in a scandal at the time because we got involved. They don't do that. You don't do that. So, but I did, and now he's my husband. Of well, we've been together for eighteen years, so this is how long ago. And one son, so I guess it wasn't that bad. I guess my case, one of the cases that you guys mentioned, the the Guatemala genocide case. And not only, obviously, it was a very personal moment for me. It was a lot of growth as a as a lawyer, and as a woman, and and expose myself. It's also the first time, which I tell this anecdote, the first time I was threatened actively. You know, all these things that you imagine someday will happen. All of them happened to me, but there is also the case that taught me more about you know what this work is about because the cases you may remember ended up being going back to Guatemala and the trial actually happened in Guatemala by Guatemalan judges they're all really good friends and you know we, we were just saying this in theory for years you will have these kind of these courses that the best thing that can happen is that someday justice is done in the country where the abuses took place. You know, all of us that care about this have heard this statement. And at some point, you do want to be honest, you go to bed sometimes thinking, am I ever going to see that? It's like, am I just saying this because it's the right thing to say or are we frankly trying to impact, you know, this, this home countries? So Guatemala was against all us a much precarious tribunals and professionals less uh, acquitted to this. And when we saw that happening in 2013 and delivering that verdict of genocide with a room full of indigenous people wearing their, you know, so proud. I mean, I still get goosebumps. I mean, it just, and that, so that case was one of the most difficult things I've ever done, but one that has to make you very proud. 
And our final asymmetrical haircuts question is, is there anything that you are reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you can recommend? You can be absolutely very uh, legal. You can also be, tell us what you're listening to when you want to get away from all the legal stuff. We're interested in both. Okay, well, three quick answers. What I listen is always jazz or the Smiths. Because I got stuck in the 1980s Smiths and they still allow me to edit writing pleadings, the Smiths, reading documents, just usually Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, what I will recommend, spectacular TV show on Prime called The Story of a Kidnapping. And it is based on a novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez on actually a particular and very interesting time in Colombian history when Pablo Escobar, and this goes to the subject matter, and I will leave it at that. I actually was telling the other day, the, the guys at the People's Tribunal, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, whose Nobel Prize, obviously everybody knows, who he is, wrote a book about two weeks of Colombia agonizing because a number of very prominent journalists had been kidnapped. Not all of them survived. I don't want to spoil the, the, the TV shows. It's like a 13 episodes. But it is when Pablo Escobar, the narco trafficker, decided that to put pressure on a couple of legislature and political decisions could happen by kidnapping journalists. And it's an interesting uh, twist of who is the journalist in our societies and why are we kidnapping journalists to put pressure on the executive and on the legislators to not pass a particular provision in their constitution. All of these are true facts. I think that uh, it's from the, the, the show is from the perspective of the victims, of the families, of those kidnapped, and it's, you can never put it down. I watch it all like that. You binge watched it. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. That sounds like a great recommendation. I have to get Amazon Prime now. Thank you so much for uh, giving us some time, uh, Almudena, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure we will come across you again and again in, in many uh, contexts in the future. So uh, thank you for, for talking to us in this context. It was an honor. Thank you very much. And please come talk to us again. And if you're in The Hague, come visit us so we can buy you a coffee and uh, ask you about other stuff. Promise, I will. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.